No, I'll leave that there. That's uh, more than enough for all my notes. Um, it's, yeah, my name is Paul. It's really good to meet you if we've not uh, met before. And um, I want to try and avoid too much preamble because there's lots that I'd really love to share with you. Um, so I trust that you maybe just have to take this on face value, that everything... I, I used to be part of this church um, and then went to be part of Kloof and led Kloof for many years, and I've recently stepped off staff and handed over Kloof, and I'm so grateful to still have the opportunity to preach, particularly back to Florida Road, although um, some of the faces have aged slightly, uh, less well than the building has um, (laughs) since... Uh, so, oh dear, that wasn't meant to be so intense. Um, yeah, even if we, we, we don't know each other or it's been a while since we've connected, this is meant in love. I really trust that this message can uh, do really good things for you. Um, so, can we just get straight into a fascinating two verses, which is going to uh, set us up. Is that okay? There's a place to start. We're talking about confidence. The goal here is that you would leave here more confident than you were when you walked in, with a plan for how to Continue to grow in confidence and get even more confident. You're going to be so confident, you're going to be glowing in the dark, right? That's the plan. Um, and so this comes out of the prophet Jeremiah, the 17th chapter of that book. And it says, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. And before we even continue, let's just establish together, what would be the opposite of blessed? Cursed, possibly, or at the very least, not blessed, <laughs> Okay. So if blessed is there is life, there is just so much goodness, and this passage will go on to describe what blessedness looks like for this uh, instance, which is that it's like being a tree that's planted next to water that sends out its roots by the stream, and it doesn't fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought, never fails to bear fruit. That's blessed, okay? So the opposite of it is cursed. Not blessed at the at, you know, best case scenario, not blessed, not that. Okay, so I've skipped a line, but let's all just agree that whatever the scriptures are about to teach us is the way to avoid a cursed life and have a blessed life. Paying attention now, okay. If we choose to go, thanks, but no thanks, I'll do the opposite to whatever this verse is about to tell us. We're saying, well, the blessed life's not for me, <laughs> I'd rather have a cursed one. Because this instruction, this advice, this steer, I don't know if I feel like doing that. For whatever reason, I'm not up for that. Okay, that's what's at stake. So blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. Scripture often does this. It uses two words back to back um, to help us It's like one word by itself doesn't quite get the idea right, so we need this compound idea. Blessed, great is the Lord and worthy of praise, right? Like it's not just enough to say great, it's not just enough to say worthy. We have to put those two together to understand what's going on. This happens a lot, especially in the Psalms, but all throughout the Scriptures. And so it's good to not just obsess about the one word, but to put the two side by side, to understand what is this idea that is being described to me. So the one who is blessed... We're busy being told by Jeremiah, is the one who doesn't just trust God, but has a kind of trust that causes them to have confidence in Him. That's interesting to me. That means it's possible to trust God, but not do it in quite the way Jeremiah is describing, and therefore not have confidence. Okay, so let's just think about that for a second. It's possible, in fact, I know 
Some of you probably trust God more than me, have better faith in Him, more of it, whatever, however you would measure faith, how many units, right? But something about the way you've allowed that to work in your brain is not causing you confidence the way Jeremiah is saying it should cause you. And a blessed life, a life that is, the op- that is not cursed, is one where your trust is in God solely, and it's the kind of trust that causes you to have confidence. And these are interesting phrases. These are interesting terms, trust and confidence. Um, I just want to think about what these words actually mean for a second, okay? Because all of us, I think, like the idea of trust. We think it's beautiful, right? The idea of being trusted, the idea of trusting someone else. We think that sounds beautiful, right? The idea of having confidence. I mean, you're at the servant series in large part because you buy into the idea that confidence is something to want, okay? So we think these are good things. But think about what they really are. Let's think about trust for a second. What are the circumstances under which you need to trust someone? I would suggest to you that when you are absolutely certain, you don't need trust, right? You only need trust when there is an element of doubt. You only need trust when there might just possibly be reason to be suspicious, right? That's when I'm choosing to believe the best about you. That's when, although I don't know for sure, I'm going to trust you, even though it makes me vulnerable. Are we agreeing on this, right? Sometimes we get into relationships with human beings, and this, I think, might absolutely revolutionize your relationship. Whoever you, at the moment, say you trust is about to have their life get better. Because you say you trust them, but what you actually, in practice, are doing is you're trying to control them. Because we're saying, no, I need to know absolutely everything. I need to track your phone. I need to check the messages. I need to know for sure, right? And we think that's trust. That's not trust. That's certainty. That's fact, which is fine. But let's not call it trust. (laughs) I hope I'm not being too philosophical about this. Let's use a different version of a similar concept. Faith, right? Faith is not faith when there's certainty. That's the whole point. If there's certainty, you don't need faith. Then it's not faith, then it's just a fact. And so this beautiful thing, trust, this beautiful thing, faith. Let's use another one. This beautiful thing, courage. Courage is not the absence of fear, is it? Someone who has no amygdala in their brain, who cannot feel fear, most five-year-old boys, for example, right? They're not brave, they're dumb, right? They're not, that's not courage. If you don't think there is anything to fear, nice tiger, you're so low. Like, that's not brave, right? Courage is, is not the absence of fear, right? Courage is only courage when there is fear. If you are scared, you have what it takes to be brave. If you are not afraid, you're not brave, okay? Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the flippant presence of it. Faith is not the absence of doubt. It's figuring out how to live with your doubt. Trust is not the absence of suspicion. It's working out how to continue to make myself vulnerable to you, even though I know you can hurt me, and I'm not convinced you're not. I'm still going to choose to trust you. So we say we want these lovely things like trust in relationships, but then we get into them, and we're like, give me the itemized list of every, you know, spotlight, where were you at five o'clock or whatever? Well, that's not trust. (laughs) When you're standing in front of me, and you see my hands behind my back, you don't have to trust me that it wasn't me that flicked your ear. You know it wasn't me that flicked your ear. But when there's a few of us standing behind you and someone flicks your ear, you have to turn around and decide well, which one is the better friend. 
and you'll then know that that's the one that flicked your ear, right? <laughs> trust is only trust when there is some doubt, when there is uncertainty. More importantly, when you don't have complete control. Faith is only faith when you don't have complete control. Courage is only courage when you don't have complete control. And our hearts long for these things. We know we love the idea of trust and being trusted, of having faith and being faithful and being worthy of other people's trust in us. We know we long to live lives of courage. But then in practice, a lot of what we do destroys those very things because we're trying to control and be certain and control and be certain and control and be certain. So Jeremiah says, the one who's not cursed, the one who is blessed, figures out how to trust God and trust Him in a way that leads to not God being more confident. Whose confidence is, that, is in debate here? Their confidence is in God. Your confidence would grow. And confident means I walk into the room, even though I have reason to be insecure, I choose to be confident. If I had certainty, it wouldn't be confidence. If you had certainty, you wouldn't need confidence. But it's, very, it's like when Paul is talking to the Corinthians, he's saying, look, even though we're genuine, we're considered imposters. Even though we're known, we're treated as if we're unknown. Even though we're beaten, we're not killed, we keep on loving. Even though we have so much reason to be sorrowful, we continue to rejoice. Even though we are poor, we continue to make others rich. It's like your confidence is the thing, this incredibly beautiful thing that is possible when you don't have control, when you don't have certainty, when you don't have the credentials to back yourself up with. That's when you get to be confident. It's okay to not be okay is another way to say what I've just been saying. It's okay to lack. It's okay to doubt. Friends, if you're here this morning and you are struggling with depression, you're struggling with sin, struggling with lack, feeling cursed, you are exactly who Jeremiah wants to talk to. You have exactly what it takes to have this kind of trust and this kind of confidence. And the people who seem absolutely certain, the people who seem untouched, the people who seem to just be sort of hovercrafting through life without anything nicking them, well, they don't really have access to trust and confidence like you do. Does that make sense? So if you're here a bit battered and bruised, you are God's favorite to work with, and you have exactly what it takes to have faith, because faith's not the absence of doubt, and courage is not the absence of fear, and trust is not the absence of suspicion from time to time. But that's not the whole picture, right? We're not just being told to release some control and to be brave enough to roll like this. That trust, that confidence needs to be in something specific, for it to result in blessing, not curse. Not something specific, someone specific, right? Jeremiah is saying, I don't just want you to have the kind of trust that causes confidence in your church leaders. <laughs> I don't just want you to have the kind of trust that causes confidence in the fact that you were clever enough to get the vaccine or clever enough not to get the vaccine, whichever group you fall into. I don't want you to have the kind of trust that causes confidence in Bitcoin, I don't want, uh, that's not the thing that's going to cause blessing. The thing that causes blessing is when you have the kind of trust that causes confidence in God, right? In Him and Him only. He has exclusive claims. 
so let's just be honest, right? It's not about Bitcoin or vaccine or any of those other things. The truth is most of us get our confidence from four places. Our money, our talent or skills or attractiveness, and I use that word attractiveness broadly, right? You believe you are attractive in certain ways, either to people or to clients or to businesses or to whoever, and I have some kind of confidence in that. In the illusion of time, we have a lot of confidence based on, well, I'm young, I think I'll never die, I have so much time to sort this out. And in the opinion of others, so for the sake of alliteration, your time, your talent, your treasure, and Twitter. You, you, this is where we get our confidence from. Right? When I have money in the bank, it affords me all this freedom and all this space, and that's what causes me confidence. When I have skills and abilities that gives me a whole lot of confidence, I can figure this out, I can solve this. When I have time on my side, the, the illusion of, of immortality that all human beings have, because, funny enough, you were designed to be immortal, that's part of the problem we're all facing. I have confidence in the sense of, well, I've still got time to figure this out. Or I have positive opinion, either it's sort of social and, and popular, or someone very credible gave me a piece of paper to prove that I have the skills required, right? We get our confidence from these areas. Funnily enough, because, or let's say it like this, what Jeremiah is saying to us is that if you're going to get your confidence from those things, you will have the opposite of the blessed life. It is cursed to get your confidence solely from the amount of money you have. That is a cursed life. This is what Jeremiah is saying to us. It is a cursed life to get your confidence solely from the opinion of others. It is a cursed life to get your confidence from the illusion of immortality. That means as soon as you start to age or realize your body is slowing down, your confidence is crushed. It is a cursed life to get your confidence from your skills or your attractiveness to others or your abilities to solve problems. That route is a life that is going to be toxic to you and no fun. And there is a different place you can get your confidence from. God himself, that kind of life, is so blessed you'll be like a tree next to a river that never withers. And this is the choice we have to make. And you know this is true, right? And I don't say this as any, I mean... Yeah, when it's financial stress, I get sick. When it, like, I am the same, right? We all struggle to not put our confidence in these things. But when Jesus says, look, it's better for you not to store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, like, he's not trying to be a prude. He means that for your best interest, right? If you're going to put your confidence on how much money you have, that means that when you have less money, you have less confidence. If I'm going to put my confidence in my ability to control things or solve things or my skills and talents, then when someone comes along who's better at it than me, my confidence gets rocked. When I'm no longer recognized for the skills I have, when I'm treated, like Paul says, like an imposter, even though I'm genuine, when I'm treated as unknown, even though I'm known, when, when people's good opinion of me goes away, my confidence is rocked. We don't want to be people like that. It's so hard not to be. But what's interesting about God is he actually demands we give him the very things we normally put our confidence in because he's so desperate for you not to end up shaky. So he says, give me your time then and your whole life. <laughs> give me your treasure then and trust me to provide. Give me your talents. Give me your reputation. Let, let your reputation be broken before men if that's what it takes. 
Because he's so aware that if my confidence is going to be built on that stuff, my confidence is rickety. It's fragile. My confidence is going to swing depending on the, the opinion of people or the circumstances around me. And so then what do I do? Well, I desperately try to control those people and circumstances because I've got to for my confidence to last. And Jeremiah is saying there's a better way. There's a blessed way. Put your trust in God. Get your confidence from him. I just want to give you a second for that to sink in, right? Because although this is maybe the more obviously dangerous place to get our confidence from, this is the common place where most of us get our confidence from. So I just want you to figure out for yourself, is it around your, your time? Is it around your talent? Is it around your treasure? Is it around the opinion of others? Which of those things does your heart most default towards building its confidence on? It may be that you trust God a whole lot, but you're still getting your confidence from those things. And before they need to be stripped away, and I'm not trying to say that to threaten you, but before they need to be stripped away, can we figure out how to get our confidence from Him and Him only? So those other things can just be good things that we have and don't have and we can be content with when we have lots or little of any of them. But that's not the whole picture. I want to push this a little further because there are also some good godly things that I think our church tradition has probably overemphasized. I'm not saying our church specifically. I'm saying the, ch- the kinds of churches that we all have grown up in and been part of have possibly overemphasized some good godly things. And we're getting our confidence from them maybe more than we should as well. And for some of you, I think this may just be really helpful. For others, this is kind of a use it, don't use it. Right? But I see three areas that modern Christianity encourages believers to get a huge amount of their confidence from, which I think are dangerous, right? So we're not talking about, I get my confidence from money. I mean, that's obviously something to deal with. But some of us, I believe, get our confidence from truth. Truth is a good godly thing. And I really don't want to generalize, but I think particularly those of us who've come through sort of Presbyterian, Baptist upbringings, I have my confidence because of how right I am. I know that I know the right stuff. I know that I have the truth accurately by the tail. I've, no one can, can argue with me. I, I have the truth accurately. This is, in fact, why Christians spend so much time arguing in comment sections, because like, it really matters. My confidence in God is based on whether or not I have my theology absolutely accurate. And so if someone then attacks part of your theology, or you have to recognize, I actually need to learn. I'm actually still a child in this area. I don't know the first thing about that thing about God. I never heard about that argument. Your confidence gets rocked. You've got to go out and fight dirty on comments boards to prove that your theology is, you know, your interpretation of the sovereignty of God is better than that one because your confidence is attached to that. Friends, truth is from God. Truth sets you free. Truth is not supposed to be the thing you get your confidence from. You get it from Him, a person, not a doctrine. You get it from Him, a person, not some academic concept. You don't have to be right in order to be confident in God. The problem with that way of thinking, the thing that the church has caused when it's lent too hard on the truth thing, is a bunch of people who are academics, not in love. Your confidence is in Him, not in information about Him. And so that means your theology can be hopeless. You could just be learning this stuff and know nothing and be absolutely confident in God. And that's also why some of us who maybe know a fair amount, and I'm one who speaks with like a teaching gift, I really care about truth. 
If I get my confidence from that, that means I have to fight dirty if it turns out that maybe I know something that's different from what you know and yours seems more believable than mine, and we have this academic debate. This is not a place where truth is the most important thing. This is a place where God is the most important thing. Another thing that I suspect churches like ours have overemphasized is transcendent experiences of the Holy Spirit. Again, please don't hear what I'm not saying. This is a good godly thing for us to chase after. But if your confidence is based on how much you're feeling or experiencing, it doesn't take a genius to work out. Your confidence is shaky, right? Came to church this one time. Worship was incredible. I felt something you did. And that was probably God or maybe 80% God and 20% your emotions or maybe the other way around. I'm sure God was involved. But if those experiences, those transcendent moments or the thing that your faith and confidence are built on, well, it's incredibly shaky. You've got to find that church that produces the correct experiences, or else your confidence is shaky. You've got to keep on topping up and going to event after event after event and hoping other people do for you what Jeremiah says you can do for yourself. Go get your confidence and your, and your courage and your trust in God himself, not in these experiences as important and good and godly as they are. Your confidence is not supposed to be built on those which is why some of the most confident Christians I know can go, well, let's think about Jesus. (laughs) My Father, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? I can't feel you right now. Wilderness experiences, years at a time without experiencing God, don't need to rock your confidence in Him. So we've maybe in some corners have overemphasized truth. In other corners, maybe we've overemphasized experience. In some corners, I think we've overemphasized fruit. People are getting saved. Therefore, this is right. I have confidence in this. The ministry is growing. Some of the most scary things that have happened in churches over recent times have happened despite the fact that numbers were growing, lives were being changed, good things were happening. You know, the apostles in, in early in the book of Acts encounter some bad guys who are preaching about Jesus to try to get the apostles in trouble. Right? Bad motives, bad character. These are people who shouldn't expect to be blessed by God. And yet, you know what the story that comes out of that is? God goes, look, I'll use them anyway. He is so committed to the lost that he'll work with dodgy people. It's good news for all of us. (laughs) But here's the lesson in that. Just because there is fruit in your life, just because the bank balance looks right or the business is growing or people keep telling you that you're blessing them or more people keep added to your ministry, should never be a cause for confidence. Otherwise, we see people as a means to an end, numbers as a means to an end. This is so dangerous for church leaders especially. The church can be shrinking. The tithes can be shrinking. The influence can be shrinking, and you can still be confident. You can still be doing the right thing, to be honest. You can still be doing, you can be absolutely in God's plan and purpose for your life. The fruit doesn't have to be there all the time. There's seasons. comes and goes, of course. But if my confidence is based on the things I do for God and how successful they might be, what a dangerous place for you to find your, yourself. My confidence comes from Him alone. And experiencing that kind of lasting, like the tree planted by a river that even in drought can just power through and continue to bless others. Poor yet making others rich. That's who we get to be. So I want to just pivot now for this last section of the sermon. 
and two, what you should actually do about this, okay? So we want to be people who are confident in God. How do I do that? How do I figure out how to go to God and get my confidence from Him? What are the things I should do, right? This is the kind of classic question. What's God's job? What's my job? What's in His control? What's in my control? That is a very difficult question that I certainly don't have a simple answer to. But as I've been really wrestling for this, I've been trying to think, well, are there any things that you can be sure are your job? So that you can then assume that pretty much everything else I'm going to trust Him with, right? And there might be some gray area around this, but these things are definitely my responsibility. I'm going to do this stuff, and I'm going to trust God with the other stuff. Because as we've said, our tendency is to try to control all the other stuff, control people, control the circumstances. But if I'm going to trust Him and have confidence in Him, I'm going to have to release a lot of that. So what is really your job? I'm going to give you a spoiler before I then run up to the answer to that question. The spoiler is, I think there are three things that are absolutely your job. I'm sure others might add to this. I'm sure some might debate. These three, I'm convinced, are your responsibility. Your attitude, your affections, and in between those two things, as the link between those two things, your attention, your attitude, what you then do with your attention, and what that then does to your affections. That is 100% your responsibility. That is your job. And I suspect very little outside of that is actually your job. I suspect most of the energies and efforts of our lives are directed at trying to control things that God is saying, let me control that stuff. You take care of business, your attitude, your attention, your affection. Figure out how to steward those things well, and you will end up being confident in any circumstance. Figure out how to steward those things well, and you will always be strengthening yourself in the Lord. And He will then lead you into that blessed life. That's the spoiler. Let me show you how I get there. Uh, we're going to use the prophet Micah. And um, just read with me. So God is having a go at his people because they've been complaining. And so he kind of calls a hypothetical court scenario. He says, look, take the mountains, be the witnesses. They've seen millions going down. I want to talk to you guys. People, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. And then he lists a bunch of things that he's done. I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I saved you. So for our purposes, God is saying to you, if you're a Christian and have put your faith in Jesus, I saved you. Before you want to complain, before you want to tell me I've done you wrong, I saved you from, from slavery. And then I didn't just leave you alone. I gave you Moses, great leader and king kind of character, Aaron, a priest who connects people to God, and Miriam, who's a prophetess and worship leader, I gave you these three people. I gave you a king, I gave you a priest, I gave you a prophet. For our purposes, I gave you Jesus, right? I gave you a king who can lead you victoriously. I gave you a priest who can deal with your sin and bring you into the presence of God. I gave you a prophet who can help you to understand and feel what's going on inside my heart. I've given you Jesus. I saved you, I gave him to you to lead you. And my people remember what Balak, the king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. So if you were with us in the beginning of lockdown and were watching along with us, you may remember Balaam with his donkey that spoke to him at one stage. He was hired by this dodgy king Balak to curse the people of God. And no matter how much Balak tried to give him money to curse the people of God, he kept on saying, I can't curse people who God has blessed. Remember this? And so he keeps on speaking a blessing over the people of God, even though he's being paid to curse them. 
So God is saying, I saved you. I've given you myself, my son, this king, priest, prophet. I've blessed you so irrevocably that anyone who tries to curse you can't because you can't curse what God has blessed. And, okay, so what Balaam, son of Beor, answered, the Lord has blessed. Um, remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. Shittim is a place. Uh, <coughs> don't know what you're thinking about. Um, better translated as the Acacia Grove. I probably should have used that version, huh? Um, the journey from Shittim to Gilgal, do you know what's in between those two things? The Jordan River. God is saying, I not only took you out of slavery and led you and blessed you, I then brought you to the promised land. And you were camping on one side of the river, and then I backed it all the way up so that you could cross on dry ground. And I turned you from slaves into freedmen and from freedmen into a nation that made other nations tremble. And I led you to the first campsite on the other side. So God is reminding them of everything he's done in their life. God is reminding you of everything he's done in your life or wants to do for you. Save you, lead you, bless you, give you confidence, turn you into a person, a people that possess a promised land. And having made that argument, Micah then starts to respond as the people should respond. So the people have been behaving badly and complaining at God. God goes, this is all I've done for you. And so Micah says, well then, with what? Shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruits of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, Micah, are you exaggerating? Is this over the top, this answer to God's case? Should I give you every good thing in my life, in fact, more than I could even conceivably earn in my life? Should I give you my child? Should I give you every good thing? This isn't sarcasm. This is wisdom. Friends, until you and I have got to the point where we recognize that this king and judge and creator of mine would be within his right to expect that, would be within his rights to expect every single good thing out of your life, more good things than a whole human life could ever produce. He is worthy of more than that. The thing you love the most, if he was to ask you to give that up, he would be within his rights. Until we've figured out that he is within his rights to ask me for that stuff, until we've worked out that probably the only reason he doesn't ask me for my son is because he has already given his son then the gospel you believe, the thing that gets you off the hook, is still too cheap and flimsy to be much good to you. The gospel that gets me off the hook is a gospel that says he would be within his rights to demand all that from me. I owe him that much. I am on the back foot that much when it comes to this glorious God, this king and judge and creator of mine. He would be within his rights, but he doesn't. You know what he does ask for? It's finished. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. So if you're off the hook and you don't have to pay him what you really owe him, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. 
I'm, a, I'm just astounded at this text. Because think for a second, you've got the God of the universe, and he's about to tell human beings, this is what is your job, this is what I expect from you. And the instruction isn't do lots of this, pay lots of that, confess lots of sins. The answer isn't a bunch of stuff that you can control. The answer is to do with what you love, how you feel about stuff. I want you to walk humbly. I want you to love mercy. The instruction isn't, I just want you to be merciful. No, I want you to love mercy. Instruction isn't, I just want you to obey the law. I want you to act justly. I want justice to be part of your character. God's expectation is that it would be this heart response or this heart change, I suppose. What he wants from you is your affections and your attitudes. Do do you see that? I, I hope this isn't too sort of tightly thought through, that God is not saying, I want certain actions, certain behaviors. He's saying, I want attitudes from you. I want you to love mercy. I want you to walk humbly. I want your heart position to be right. This is your job, your attitude, your affection. And I believe the link between those two things is your attention. Because if I have the right attitude, or let's use it the other way around. If I have the wrong attitude, if I assume everyone hates me, okay, and I'm worth nothing, and then I meet a new person. My attitude is already predisposing me to believe, well, they're not going to like me, right? Have you had this experience? Maybe uh, because this is my experience, boys, you sort of start out afraid of pretty girls, right? Because you just assume they're going to hurt you or reject you. Maybe some of you were so confident. Yeah. But anyway, for most of us, if you start out with the wrong attitude, the wrong set of beliefs, that completely predisposes you to get the result you're expecting, right? I expect to be hated, I expect to be judged, I expect to be tricked. Which means you're not even going to notice maybe the lovely, friendly signals that are coming your way. Let's use another example. You assume you are unlucky. You have bought into the idea that you are unlucky, whatever that means. Studies have shown that people who believe they are unlucky are less lucky because you don't notice the 10 rand note that's lying on the floor. You see it, then you think, well, it's probably a trap anyway. Someone's going to, you know, kick me when I bend down to pick it up. So your attitude is where it starts. And God wants you to sort that out with some truth, I suppose, with reminding you of who he is, just like he's done through the prophet Micah here. I saved you. I'm with you. I've blessed you. And I've taken you into a promised land. That's who you are. Get that into your attitude. If you do that, then how's that going to affect your affections? Well, you get to be in control of your attention. You get to be in control of what you look at and don't look at. Because, friends, your affections, your, the stuff that's in your heart that you think is hard to control, oh, I, just, I just love that and I don't love that. I just like this and I don't like that. I just enjoy this. It's just who I am. Nonsense. The more you look at a thing, the more you will like it, I promise. The more you attend to something, the more interesting it becomes to you. You can control your affections. You start with having the right attitude and then you direct your attention the way you're supposed to, and then you get the affections God wants you to have. Anyone who's been married any length of time will be able to prove this to you. If you you put no effort into it, then the person who you're supposed to find most interesting in the world will no longer be the person who's most interesting to you in the world. But if you choose to have your attitude about her and yourself correct, and you choose to put your attention onto her instead of everywhere else, your affection for her will continue to grow. 
which is why in Ephesians, you're not told to fall in love with your spouse. You're told to just love your spouse. Just do it. You can control your affections. And this is really, I suppose, all we have time to end with. That God is saying to you, you can be blessed, not cursed. You can be like a tree next to a river that doesn't fear the drought. If you're prepared to put your confidence and trust in me. And the way you do that, the way you get your heart longing for me instead of all this other stuff, is like Micah the prophet has said. Get your head right around everything he's done for you. Put your attention properly onto him and rip it off the stuff that's doing you no good. And as you do that, the affections will follow. And those affections that point you towards this trustworthy God will cause you to be confident. Easy enough, right? Of course, it's not easy. But it's worth trying. Of course, it's not easy. But that blessed life is what I long for. It's what I know you long for. It's what God has promised to you. And where my, my attitudes and beliefs need to change, where my attention needs to shift, where I need to fan affections back into flame in my heart that I've allowed to go cold, if that's what it takes to not just be blessed, but then be able to be a blessing, poor yet making many rich, well, sign me up. That's what we're here for. That's what we're after. And so all the things, friends, that we've been trying to control and trying to get our confidence from, can we all just agree, let's just stop for a while? Let's just not get our confidence from that stuff for a while? And let's have a go at getting our confidence wholly and solely from God. There are people here who would love to pray with you. There's stuff for you to do this week to get into communities with people who will help you to figure out how to live this life. But I'm going to just end with a quick prayer for you. Lord Jesus, these are big ideas, weighty things, where we get our confidence from, where we get our courage from, where we get our security from, what is our responsibility in that and what you want to do in that. These are big ideas. I pray that through all the ideas, you've grabbed hold of people's hearts somehow. You initiate the stirring of those affections. We will respond, Lord. We will do everything we can to get our attitudes and our attention correct so that our affection for you can grow. But I pray right now that you would initiate something in every heart in this room, that you would take the first step like you always do and spark something, begin a romance, begin an eternal relationship, begin a friendship, refresh something in every one of our hearts. And Lord, we will, with all the failing strength that we have, run towards you as best we can because we know that you are our only source. And thank you for the incredible life that is possible as we do this. Amen. Lovely to see you all. Have a wonderful day. Um, there's coffee outside. Pray up front if you need it. Uh, pay for someone's university if that sounded right for you. See you next week. <laughs>